Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. Bro, I'm Louise Palanker. I always forget my line. <laughs> we rehearsed this over and over and over again. <laughs> Heading into the holidays, you can consider Media Path your designated shopper. We've got great suggestions of things you could watch or listen to or rent or purchase or even consume for free, with or without visiting relatives. Our favorite part is welcoming fascinating guests who are experts in their field. And I will say that no one knows more about the Beach Boys and specifically Brian Wilson than our guest today, David Leaf. David is a writer and director and producer and has nearly made a career of studying the fascinating lives and the careers of the quintessential California band, The Beach Boys. We're going to talk about his latest book, God Only Knows, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The California Myth. Can't wait to get to it. But first, Wheezy, what have you got? I've been watching TV, Fritz. I know you have. So 1989 is not a Yellowstone spinoff. Why are shows using log lines as titles? The only people who should be permitted to title their work with a number are the band Chicago and Adele. Numbers confuse me. So to help you remember this particular number, picture people on a ship about to get their Victorian party on like it's 1899. But then mysterious events change the course of an immigrant steamship heading for New York as a mind-bending riddle begins to unfold for its bewildered passengers. This is a German production series with an eerie, elegant aesthetic that challenges you to just try relaxing into it. Pretty quickly, the mood, the tone, the complexities, and the sci-fi thriller mystery of it all will remind you of the show Lost. Everyone is struggling with personal dilemmas and backstories which collide with chillingly confounding supernatural circumstances. Get your subtitles fired up. These characters are speaking 11 different languages, and even their English is the British version over, as the subtitles may call it, unsettling dramatic music and difficult to understand. Everyone appears to be fleeing something back home. And so when the captain decides to tow a ghost ship back to England, revolt and mutiny ensue. The show is beautiful and challenging. Be prepared to be confused, but just take it all in. Both streaming and life are about the journey. 1899 is on Netflix. Awesome. Fritz, what have you been taking? Well, I watched a movie in a theater. Uh, She said... I think it's only in theaters now, mm-hmm. or it's on Amazon Prime for $35 or something <laughs> like that. This is the story of the Harvey Weinstein nightmare and the beginning of the Me Too movement. Two New York Times journalists, Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor, published a report that exposes sexual abuse charges against Harvey Weinstein. This is at the same time that Ronan Farrow was doing his expose in the New Yorker magazine. There was a lot of heat about that topic at the time. And the movie starts and sort of sets the tone for the atmosphere of sexual assault by going through Donald Trump's honor roll of sexual assault charges. This is very similar to the movie Spotlight, which showed the investigation into the pre-sex scandal in Boston, and The Post, which was the background for the Pentagon Papers, and of course, All the President's Men. All of these stories or about reporters doing their groundwork, making secret confabs, and even facing death threats. And this is the greatest work of all of their careers in in order to shed light on the dysfunction in every workplace, great and small in corporate America, that is sexual abuse. The, The two leads are played by Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. I think it's an important movie because all these movies I mentioned are journalism at its best, the reason why we have a free press. Now, I saw this movie with my 22-year-old college student daughter. 
And it was a chance to gauge the reaction of her generation to see how seriously they take the whole Me Too movement. And they take it very seriously. Her outrage grew and grew as the movie went along. It was the same reaction I'd seen with her when her and her roommates blew up at the Dobbs decision with Roe Wade. They're on fire. And it ultimately drove all of those kids on her campus to the polls. So as I often say to my daughter, hurry up, finish college. You guys have to save us from ourselves. So it was fun. I'm, I'm so glad I saw it with my daughter. I mean, Aww. this is all, this is not, none of it is new material. All right. the docs that have been produced about him. Uh, but it was, it, to see it dramatized makes it even more powerful. And yeah. These women did a great job. Yeah, I'm looking All right, to let's get to our amazing guest. Yeah. Our guest is a Peabody and Writers Guild Award winner. He's a director and a writer and a producer. He wrote the authorized biography of the Beach Boys, Wheezy. I'll give you a chance to gasp. He's the creative force behind music documentaries like The Night James Brown Saved Boston, about the night Martin Luther King was shot, The U.S. versus John Lennon, Beautiful Dreamer, the story of Brian Wilson, and the album Smile. We'll talk about that one. He's written several books about rock and roll, like Kiss Behind the Mask, The Beach Boys, and The Beach Boys in the California Myth. And his latest book is an update of that, God Only Knows, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The California Myth. We're very happy to welcome David Leaf. David, thank, thank you for being here today. My, my pleasure, uh, Fritz. This is, that was, did I write that? No. I always say if, if the, your introducer gets 50% of it correct, then that's fine. You got 90. <laughs> we spend the rest of the show correcting your introduction. Yeah, there it is. I, I want to comment on the title because uh, you had a great line. I don't know if it was in the introduction of your book or later on in the book. You said, before the Beach Boys, California was a state. And then when the Beach Boys hit, California became an idea, which I thought was spectacular. What lit your passion for the Beach Boys? Well, my passion for the Beach Boys, I, I was kind of late to it. Uh, in the 1960s, I was, the Beatles were my musical gods. I, I bought a few Beach Boys singles. Um, I saw the Beach Boys in concert in 1967. But they, they were just another group on my hit parade. Uh, in 1971, I, I read an article in Rolling Stone magazine written by Tom Nolan a two-part cover story on Rolling Stone, if you can imagine the Beach Boys being on the cover of, of Rolling Stone. And this story laid out in various pieces, uh, really the myth of Smile, the, the story of the abusive childhood that the Wilson brothers had had, the kind of, you used the word dysfunction, the dysfunctional family that was the Beach Boys, and, and where Brian Wilson was at this particular time. And it, the myth of smile really caught my attention. What is this smile music they're talking about? And the, and the story was promoting the, the latest Beach Boys album called Surf's Up. So I bought the album. This story worked. I bought the album. And Surf's Up, the last song on the album, was as great, if not greater, than what the, what the article had described. And I was like, wow, I want to hear more of this smile music. The song just before Surf's Up on side two called Till I Die was one of the most depressing songs I'd ever heard. However, what you heard until I die was that Brian Wilson's musical talents were all intact. His ability to write a beautiful melody, write a beautiful lyric, create great harmonies for the group. And so I thought to myself, something is wrong here. Um, I was a journalism student. I was going to school at, at, at George Washington in the middle of the Nixon administration. 
Uh, you mentioned the Washington Post. We used to go to the Howard Johnson's near the Watergate Hotel, and it was at that Howard Johnson's where they were leaving envelopes of cash at, at, at the phone booth. Wow. So we were in the midst of, of the criminal Nixon administration. I don't use that phrase lightly. They all went to jail. I think 36 of them, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we were angry, and I was a journalism student. What can we do? Um, and I studied Edward R. Murrow. And it was like, okay, so you can tell a story and change the narrative of the story, mm-hmm. as he did with Joe McCarthy. And and so, for whatever reason, I took it upon myself that I was going to be the one to tell Brian Wilson's story and change the narrative of the story. And how old are you when you make that epiphany? Uh, 19. Oh, my God. I was... I was um, I had a roommate who also became obsessed with the subject, and we'd sit and talk about it. And I said, something is wrong here. And he said, well, why don't you do something about it? Well, let, me, let me just interrupt you. So change the narrative from what the public perception about Brian Wilson was and what the truth was, or you were trying to get to the reason why all of these you know, mental illness things were floating around. What, 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 was your, what were you trying to set straight with your narrative? Right. What was the narrative at that moment? The narrative at that moment was that Brian Wilson was a crazy genius. Oh. As, as, as uh, his best friend Danny Hutton says brilliantly in, in Don Wes's film, uh, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, when you're having hits, you're eccentric. And when you stop having hits, they just think you're crazy. So Brian Wilson is at that point where people just think he's crazy. And it's like, no, he's not crazy. He's just different. And he's an artist. And artists aren't supposed to be normal. Great art doesn't come from an everyday person. And so I, I wanted to kind of grab the, the, the world by the collar and, under, and, and like shake him and say, do you understand how important this Brian Wilson guy is? Um, there were other issues as well as you described that, that I thought should be part of the story. Uh, it, none of it made any sense. And I was really angry also that this person who clearly was, was having, well, he was mentally ill from what I, the way I read it. But so why are they having him do interviews to promote an album? That struck me as, as morally wrong. So I just had, had all of these things roiling around in my head. And it was, I'm going to move to California and, and write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend, and help him finish Smile. That was, that was the, the notion. I might as well have said to my roommate, you know what? I'm going to become president of the United States. So where are we on that checklist, David? <laughs> check, 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 check. How does that feel? It's kind of unbelievable. It's 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 as surreal as it was 51 years ago when I thought about the possibility, but it almost seems like it was meant to be. That this was my calling. That that I was a missionary, and this was my mission. Well, what it feels like when you're reading all the installments, because it's like basically David wrote his book in 1978. Then it was then there was a new version in 1985. But those were all print versions. Now it's on Kindle, and you have bookended that with all kinds of added wisdom and ingredients and, and more of the story. But what it feels like throughout the journey is that, y- you know, you had a moral rudder that that remained very focused and that Brian was responding to that. Is that accurate? I, I, I think that's a, a, a – I think of it as a moral compass. Okay. It's like what's right and what's wrong. And that's that really was a guiding principle for the way I was brought up, uh, the way the world was. And we watched a series of assassinations in the 1960s of people who were taking us in the direction that I thought was the right direction. 
the Beach Boys music was not part of any of that. That was just, you know, happy music. But when I saw that the man who had made all this happy music, who was the principal reason for the Beach Boys' success, wasn't being treated well. It was like, this is wrong. Like he's sacrificing his happiness for ours. Well, he's not so much sacrificing his happiness, but he's being exploited. Mm-hmm. I want to mention, I want to talk about that too. It seems to me, and I think you sort of, in a, in a general way, mentioned this in the book, that the band put him out there for instance, to do interviews. He was very uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, he was uncomfortable to perform live, but the band talked him into it because he was the guy responsible for the music. He didn't necessarily want to do that early in his life. But again, to talk about this dichotomy between mental illness and sort of genius, the thing about it was they knew that he had a gift, like when he was five, six, seven years old when he sang in church and he was able to uh, uh, um, harmonize with his family, they knew there was something very special. So the genius part was recognized very, very early. The mental health part came later, and there's a lot you can argue about how much of that was the corporal punishment elicited by Murray, his father, and how much was you know all the other stuff we'll talk about. But it was, it's two things, really. The genius and the mental illness don't have to be from the same source. Uh, they sure don't. He, he he was born with this gift. Mm-hmm. He, he you know it, it could have been the Beach Boys, and and the, uh, the Wisconsin miss myth if he had been <laughs> born in Madison. I mean it just was a coincidence of, of geography that his family was here. So there there is the the corporal punishment you talk about. There's the the recognition of the 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 genius early on. His father was an unsuccessful songwriter. His father saw what Brian had, and he he fostered it. I mean, he took Brian to see the four freshmen. Brian worshipped the four freshmen. He bought Brian a tape recorder, a real-to-real tape recorder, so Brian could practice uh, creating harmonies. So so, uh, the family, uh, uh, Dennis wasn't part of it, but dad and mom and brother Carl and Brian— would would have Saturday night sing-alongs where they would sing. There was no such thing as rock and roll when Brian was a kid. It hadn't hadn't, hadn't come along. They were singing, you know, the Great American Songbook. Mm-hmm. Brian was singing in the church choir. He was singing Christmas carols when they would go caroling. He just had this beautiful, beautiful uh, boy soprano voice that that ended up being a beautiful high tenor voice. And it was a magical sound. I mean, I get goosebumps when I think about the impact that that sound had on me and millions of people all over the world. And just jumping ahead, you know, people talk about, what about the lyrics? What about the lyrics? And I remember in 1999, um, Brian asked me to go with, with he and Melinda, his, his second wife, when he toured Japan. A very short tour, but very exciting to go. And we had a day off. And we went to Kyoto. And um, the man who drove us around Kyoto spoke a little bit of English, but not a lot. And at the very last stop at a, at a, at a holy site in the city, after we had toured the site, Brian and Melinda went into the gift shop to buy something for their, their two very young daughters, Daria and Delaney. And I was standing with, with the driver, and I said, do you know who that man is? And he said, no. I, and I, so I explained to him that it was the man who, who was responsible for composing, arranging, and producing the Beach Boys music. And he says, 
That music makes my heart soar. Oh, wow. Well, that's all you need right that, there. That's all, you, that's all you need. So I invited him to, the, to one of Brian's Tokyo concerts. Aww. I said, if you can, if you can <laughs> get, get off from work, you and your wife are welcome to come to the show. Not realizing that not only were the shows sold out, but unlike in the United States where the promoter is always holding some tickets, that wasn't the case in Tokyo. So the Tokyo promoter says, well, all we have is the royal box. So, so these people came from Kyoto, and they were seated in the royal <laughs> oh box. Wow! And they came backstage after the show, and of course they brought gifts, and and this is a very magical moment. And afterwards, Brian and I were walking back to his dressing room. And he said, "This is the reason to tour Aww. because you're touching people all over the world with your music." Yeah. And how did he receive that sort of adulation? I mean, he was very shy. Uh, he was a he was a dichotomy. He was shy and sort of introspective, but he loved to do jokes and loved to sort of be funny and get laughs. But how how was that moment for him? It, it was a beautiful moment for him be- because these these people were shy as well in mm-hmm. his presence. Uh, people people are inti- Brian's intimidating. He's he's a big man. Right? He's a big man. He's larger than life physically and who because of who he is. And and so even Paul McCartney when he talks to Brian, he's a little I wouldn't say intimidated, but he's careful. Deferential. Deferential. Yeah. Uh, deferential, but it's they're they're peers talking to each other, mm-hmm. and there aren't too many people who you can say that about with Brian. With who, Paul McCartney, uh, that he would that Paul McCartney would feel in awe in their presence, because I'm sure every since he became a Beatle, the moment Paul McCartney walks in a room, everything stops. Absolutely, <laughs> Paul McCartney said that God only knows is the greatest song ever written. That's pretty strong. I, I had the great privilege of interviewing Paul. He wasn't yet Sir Paul when when I did this interview in 1990. It was for the the, the CD liner notes for Pet Sounds when it when it finally came out on CD. And there's, you know there there's so many great moments, but you know we're waiting on a Saturday night. There's going to be a call. Paul's on t- on tour in Tokyo, and the phone rings and. Can you hold for Paul? <laughs> and it's like, yes, I think I can hold for Paul. But what was special about that interview, not so much, I mean, it was for me, it was you know, mind-blowing. But he had, I don't think he'd ever done an interview where he wasn't the focus of the interview. He was talking about somebody who he loved and music that he loved. And in that interview, he talking about pet sounds and the influence on he and John and that God only knows made him cry when he would listen mm-hmm. to it. And, you know, people are always asking him, what's your favorite song? And he says, I usually put God Only Knows at the top of the list. Well, the creative strain, not strain, but the creative energy between the Beach Boys and the Beatles is very interesting. Uh, Brian said that Rubber Soul was the impetus to write Pet Sounds to do a better album. And then the Beatles said Pet Sounds was the impetus to do Sgt. Pepper, which they wanted to be production-wise, a better album. So they've always bounced back and forth like that, which is wonderful. Well, the, the great thing about that, because uh, I've ha- I had the privilege uh, before he passed of working with Sir George Martin. And one, he said two things about, about Brian and, the, and, and Pet Sounds that I think are worth mentioning. One, he, he said, Sergeant Pepper was, was our attempt to equal pet sounds, which I think is is a staggering thing to mm-hmm. say. It was a, we, we didn't we didn't equal it. We didn't better it. It was our attempt to equal it. The other thing he said, I, I, I with with the late Phil Ramone, the great record producer, and, and my pal Chip Racklin, we 
we produced a tribute to Brian in 2001 at Radio City Musical. And Sir George said, if I had to select one living genius of popular music, it would be Brian Wilson. And, and this is somebody who's worked with pretty much everybody. And so, so and, and the great thing about it is Brian is sitting there in, in, the, in the you know stage left, backstage left, watching these moments happen at this tribute. And when you're famous, people are always trying to curry favor with you. And they'll say, oh, you know, I ran into so-and-so today, and they're big fans of yours. Mm-hmm. And well, you learn to just ignore it at some point, because mm-hmm. you realize they're just sycophants. But he couldn't, deni- mm-hmm. he could not deny what was happening in front of his face, oh. that Paul Simon did this magnificent version of, of Surfer Girl, that, that, that Elton John came out and talked about how influential Brian was, that George Martin said what he did. And so there have been so many wonderful moments. What was moments. the occasion? Where, where all these- this, was, this was an all-star tribute to Brian Wilson at Radio City Music Hall. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, let's talk for a moment. If there might be listeners to our show that aren't familiar with- the myth of smile, and you know, and what it me- what it means, and what it was, and what it meant to fans, and the part that you played in its ultimate um, completion. So, what is smile? So, smile smile was the follow up album to Pet Sounds. In the in the in the course of making Pet Sounds, Brian had started working on a song that he titled Good, Good, Good Vibrations. But he decided to to put it aside that it wasn't right for Pet Sounds. And when he finished Pet Sounds, he then went to work on Good Vibrations, and he recorded in, in what would be called a modular technique, pieces of songs. I'm going to go to one studio and record the verse here. I'm going somewhere else to record the bridge. I'm going somewhere else to record the middle eight, whatever uh, the, 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 the ramp, whatever it was. And then he stitched it all together so to make really this. he really wanted it to sound like separate movements. He, he, he wanted to do something that no one else had ever done before. Smile was going to be an entire album like that. In, in the fall of 1966, he went to work on it with a, with a great writer, composer, lyricist uh, named Van Dyke Parks, and they started working on on Smile, and they were writing away songs songs like Surfs Up and Wonderful and Cabin Essence. Uh, Brian got a sandbox for his house. He put his piano in the sandbox and he sat there with bare feet because he wanted the feeling of being at the sand, which when you're having hit records, remember, you're just being eccentric. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not being crazy. Later on, that became a legend that he was crazy because he had the sandbox. So they're writing this great music. The Beach Boys are on tour in England. And Dennis Wilson was asked about this new album that the Beach Boys were working on. And he said, smile is so good it makes pet sounds stink. <laughs> so so the bar was raised, to say the least. Simultaneous to all of that was that a man named Derek Taylor had become the Beach Boys publicist. He had been the Beatles publicist. Then he moved to Los Angeles. He was working with the Beatles. He was working with the Birds and, and Brian and the Beach Boys. And because of his connections in the, in the UK press, he, he created the notion. He wrote, Brian Wilson is a genius dot, 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 I think, which eventually became shortened to Brian Wilson is a genius. And so there was all this expectation around this album. And Brian worked on it, and he worked on it, and he worked on it. And at some point in the course of the spring of, of 1967, he shelved it. 
and it became mythological. What happened to this album that was going to be better than Pet Sounds? What ha- happened to this album that Derek Taylor was telling the, the Beatles about? He says, boy, you guys better raise your game. This guy's doing unbelievable stuff. Paul McCartney came to, to Los Angeles on, on a periodic trip, and Brian came over to Derek Taylor's house, and he said, you want to hear our new single? It hasn't come out yet, and he played him Good Vibrations. So when Paul went back to London, it was like, you guys, this this guy's, he, you know, he's doing amazing work. Let, let me read, well, I, I love this story, I, but I just want to read some stats about Good Vibrations, because okay. that was the song... You know, uh, Pet Sounds was artistically accepted and lauded, but commercially was not huge. But it, correct me if I'm wrong. Good Vibrations sort of restored their reputation briefly in this one single. It took six months to record it, 90 hours of recording tape, 11 completed versions of the song, and it took 10 different studios, as you mentioned, to get the right and perfect final sound. That's pretty staggering. That has to be the first time that ever happened. It, it was. And, and of course, what did the record company care about? How much money he was spending on this single. The, the one thing about Pet Sounds not being the commercial success that previous Beach Boys albums had been, from what I understand, um, when, when record stores sold out of Pet Sounds and they would reorder copies, the, the record company would send Best of the Beach Boys. Really? As, uh, out. They didn't support it at all. They didn't support know. it. They put out the best of the Beach Boys as something to promote. Well, it's it's. Oh, it's, is that the new label? It, no, it's what it's what the record company does when they think your career's over. It's like let's get a greatest hits album out and cash in one more time. Okay. Anyway, so Brian's at work. It's on Smile after after the after the monumental success of Good Vibrations, creative and and commercial, and the Beach Boys are touring to to universal acclaim, but not because of what they're doing on stage because they're basically doing a 25-minute show but because of what Brian's doing in the studio. The anticipation. When they get back from their tour and they hear this new music, it's not necessarily well-received by all members of the group. And so there's a combination of factors happening that cause Brian to shelve it. And when I interviewed him uh, for the Beautiful Dreamer documentary, now, think about it. He shelves it in the spring of 67, and in the th- 37 years after that, every time he's interviewed, he's asked, what about Smile? Are you ever going to finish Smile? So when I asked him the question in the, in the documentary, why did you decide to stop working on Smile? He answers, his, he answers me, okay, if I tell you the answer, he doesn't say this out loud, but it's this the tone. If I tell you, will people stop asking me? <laughs> Is this the last, can be, this be the last time mm-hmm. I answer this question? And he says, okay, I'll tell you from my heart. There were four reasons why I stopped working on Smile. And those four reasons all make sense within the psychodrama that was his life and the Beach Boys. Um, there, was, there was too much drug taking going on for sure. Any drug taking when you have mental illness is probably not a good idea. But the first time Brian took LSD, he went to the piano and wrote California Girls. So it opened up artistic windows for him that, that weren't there before. So w- w- unless we had a, you know, a wayback machine like we were on Rocky and his friends and we could go back and actually be in the room and see what see how it went from here to hear, we don't really know for sure, but 
but the four reasons Brian gave included the fact that Mike Love didn't like it. And w- one of the things that that is true about the Beach Boys, it's about true about all of them as individuals, is they essentially sacrificed themselves for the group. The group always came first. Uh, in Brian's life, the Beach Boys came first. He had been taught loyalty by his father. And and so he he sacrificed this great work of art. But he may have also sensed that the that Mike Love was a barometer and and that the audience wasn't going to be ready for it. And he may have been right because when it was finally presented, his audience had grown up and 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 maybe were were more favorably inclined to something that unusual. Well, you could be right. Mm-hmm. However, John Lennon was asked circa 1966, maybe it was right after Revolver, are you afraid you're going to lose your, your, your old fans? And he said something like, well, yeah, we may lose some of our old fans, but we'll get some new fans too. And, and that's what artists do. Artists don't stay in one place. Mm-hmm. And Brian had been moving quite rapidly, 65, 66 into 67. There was clearly, the music was changing. Um, the music and the culture was changing. I mean, 1967 is the year of the Monterey Pop Festival. So there was a new audience that might have embraced this music. Maybe, but he was so far ahead of taste curves. He was so far ahead because he was constantly challenging himself. So I don't know. I was going to ask you if you think Smile came out when it was meant to come out, ultimately. I guess it did. I, I don't I don't know. I've never been asked that question, and, and I've never really thought of it. Uh, I know that in 1993, when we were working on um, the Beach Boys' first box set called Good Vibrations, um, and I had done the track listing um, with Andy Paley, and, and I went over to Brian's to go over the track listing with him. And we looked at it, and he had a couple of suggestions. And I said, you know, Brian, between the single of Good Vibrations and the single of Heroes and Villains, there's a giant gap. I said, there's eight months but there's nothing from the smile sessions. I'm not asking you to finish them, but we should put some of the, the the closely finished smile recordings here so that this is a complete presentation of your career. And he said, okay. Because if you if you talk to Brian Wilson with respect, if you if you respect the fact that it's his creation, he he's extraordinarily reasonable. So we went through a list of, of songs, and we picked about a half hour's worth of Smile music. So in 1993, mm-hmm. that music was on the Good Vibrations box set. Okay. Box sets usually appeal to hardcore fans. Yeah. This one was a gold album. Wow. Primarily because the Smile music was on there. Oh, really? A couple of questions about, back to the Mike Love comment that Weezy made, which was great. Uh, do you think there was some jealousy because the surf songs... Mike was the lyric writer with Brian on those. And then he started to use the lyric talents of Van Dyke Parks and other people for Pet Sounds and beyond. Do you think there was some jealousy involved in Mike not being included in that creative process? I, I think jealousy is the, the right word. I think there's also a sense of uh, money. 
uh, because if you have your name on the song, you're getting the royalties, the uh-huh. publishing royalties. In terms of Mike being, Mike was Brian's most successful lyrical collaborator, but from the very beginning, Brian was writing with other people. He wrote In My Room with, with Tony Asher. Mm-hmm. He wrote Don't Worry Baby with Roger Christian. He wrote the, the most of the Pet Sounds album with Tony Asher. I mean, he, he wrote Surfer Girl all by himself. I mean, Brian, Brian was a very competent lyricist. Mm-hmm. He just liked writing songs with people. Mm-hmm. And, and the engineer, Chuck Britz, who... who was there for the vocal sessions for most of their greatest records in the 1960s, said to me, as far as I'm concerned, Brian is the Beach Boys. That's a, that's a direct quote from him. He said Brian would, would be teaching the songs to the guys, and he would have the lyric, and somebody would jump in with lyrical suggestions to get their name on the record. Oh, oh man. Wow. And, and what about the complication? You know, Pet Sounds and Smile were beautiful studio creations. And so how did they duplicate, even though Brian wasn't touring with them at that point, how did they recreate those beautiful sounds on tour, or didn't they do that many of the songs from those particular albums on tour? They did it because what made those songs beautiful, what makes those songs beautiful is, is their vocals. Mm-hmm. And actually, in, in in the fall of 1966, Brian went to 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 Michigan, where the Beach Boys were going to perform "Good Vibrations" live for the first time, to to work with them to get it to sound not like the record, but as close to, enough like the record that the audience would go, "Yeah, that's that's good vibrations." Mm-hmm. So the Beach Boys really never had a hard time recreating. The, their vocal magic on stage. They're great, great singers, all of them. I mean, in, in, in you know, Mike, Mike is the bass singer. Al Jardine, uh, a high school friend of Brian's, a, a, a really solid vocalist, and and brothers Carl and Dennis. They 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 all knew their parts, and they sang them beautifully. So no matter when you saw the Beach Boys in concert from '63 on, they sounded like the Beach Boys. You still to today. They know how to replicate that sound on a stage. And Mike being really the leader on the stage, maybe he, because he had he had taken the Beach Boys around the world, he knew how audience responded, and maybe he just couldn't envision them responding to Pet Sounds the way they were responding to some of the earlier stuff. But I think it's a combination of things, but it also... Well, it, you know, Pet Sounds had Wouldn't It Be Nice on it, it had Sloop John B on yeah. it, it had God Only Knows on it, so it had hit singles on it. The audience, he, the Beach Boys weren't being asked to play the whole album, although, right. when, although when Brian went out on tour and played the whole album, standing ovations all over the world. That's what makes me not understand Capitol Records' feeling to not support the album. To have three hit singles on one album, I, I call that successful. Um so let's go back to the 60s. EMI, which is the parent company for Capital, for an entire year, even though the, 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 the Beatles were signed to EMI in, in England, Capital in the United States said, hey, we don't want those. We don't want those Beatles records. For an entire year, we don't want those Beatles records. It wasn't until I Want to Hold Your Hand that they finally, <laughs> they finally, they, they didn't want She Loves You, they didn't want Please Please Me. They, 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 so the people at Capital didn't know the market. They really didn't. They they were they were they were old fashioned. They, they didn't they, understand this. The baby boomers, had, you know, it was a first generation with walking around money, and we're going to be kind of like at the forefront of musical taste from this time forward. 
because we had a first generation of teenagers after World War II who said, I'm, I'll decide what I like. I can find it. Well, one of the interesting things about that is, is, is while we as baby boomers had walking around money, mm-hmm. we were buying primarily singles. Yeah. The, it was, the album business was an adult business okay. so that Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass was outselling the Beatles on the album charts. Wow. Because adults were like, we're going to buy that. Our kids are going to buy whatever they want, but the kids bought singles. Plus, Pet Sounds was the first, I think considered the first, concept album. And so if you didn't like the vibe of the whole album, maybe you weren't prone to buy it or you wouldn't buy, pick the singles out that you like. And but it was an album it. that you would sit on your bed and dream to or have, have a series of feelings to. Well, the, 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 yes, and it's the, the reason why it's still consistently in the top five greatest albums of all times in every survey, usually at number two, sometimes number one, is because it's about teenage angst. I I think of Pet Sounds as Brian's emotional autobiography because everything that matters to me about Brian is the feeling he puts into the music, and Pet Sounds has a lot of feeling. Well, um, talk about rereading your original 1978 book because it feels like there are parallels to you revisiting that book and then Brian finally completing Smile. Like we have to acknowledge what we did when we were too young to know what we were doing. <laughs> uh, you know, I had when, when I when the publisher said yes, we'd like to bring out your old book but with a massive update using the British term. <laughs> um, I said it's really important that the update be significant because Otherwise, the people who bought the first book or the second edition aren't going to buy this. And so we agreed that 30,000 words of an, of, a, of an update would be a massive update. And, and as I'm writing away, I get to 30,000 words, and it's like okay, I, I email the, the editor. And I say, I'm in 1994. I'm going to need 40,000 words. And when I get to 40,000 words, I email them. I'm going to need f- – the, the, the update's over 60,000 words, which is more than half the length of the original book. And so the idea is you're getting two books in one. You're getting two lives in one. I was a journalist, fan, writing the first book. Now I'm a friend, insider. The, the, the book is designed to celebrate what Brian Wilson has accomplished since the last book came out because both the first edition and, and the second edition end on, on, on hopeful but sad notes. There's, there's no real reason to think that Brian Wilson's going to have both a personal redemption and, a, and an artistic renaissance at the end of either edition of the book. I'm hoping for it as a fan, but but it's, what do they say? You know, if you don't have false hope, you don't have any hope. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it was really an unlikely series of circumstances. Brian finishing Smile um, sort of put the pin on my story in terms of what I had set out to do. Um, but I didn't just stop being friends with him. Right. Um, it was, it was, um, you know, it was just this incredible moment. And I was there in unexpected ways. I just expected to be at the concert. So what's your personal journey with Brian and Smile? So in, in, in the summer of 2003, the Smile concerts have been announced for February of 2004. And we're in the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica walking back from the movies. And out of nowhere, he says to me, I, I can't do the smile unless you're there with me. And Brian is so intuitive. It's like he probably, that was true, but he probably knew I wanted to be there too. (laughs) He knew how much it it would mean to me. Um, He never said that, but um, I said, well, Brian, I'm 
got a production company. I can't, I can't just be gone for four months. I said, the only way that could happen is if, if I made a documentary about it. And he said, okay. And, and so we went, uh, we went to, to his house and, and talked to he and his wife about it. And she said, well, how are the, what will the fans think of this documentary? And I said, I'm not worried about what the fans are going to think. We're, we're get, we want the 99% of the people who've never heard of Smile, who don't even care about the Beach Boys. This is their chance to understand Brian Wilson, the artist. And that's the audience we want to get. I'm always... Uh this may be a root of my relationship with my own father, but I'm always interested in um, the the thread of relationship uh, between father and a creative person. And when you see how their life started in Hawthorne, California, where their father beat the tar out of them for no apparent reason, all of them, not just Brian, but all the kids, corporal punishment to the point where they feared him and hated him. But he continued to be a great influence in their life to the point where he represented them in the business world. And when they were having arguments with Capitol Records, he went and stood up for him. I'm, I'm so interested. They didn't do an official patch up of their relationship. His father just never went away. Right. And assumed a different role as they got older. Um, so there's a lot of yin and yang here. Um, he Brian says, my father gave me the competitive spirit. He told me to be the best. He pushed me. Without that push, who knows what happens. Uh, d uh, Carl, I don't think, got too much abuse. I think Brian is the oldest, bore the brunt of it. Dennis, is saw, as, as soon as he saw what was going on, he was out of the house, and he was off to the beach, where he became, he became the only real beach boy. He's, he's, he was the surfer in the group. And I love the fact that all these spectacular beach songs that put California on the map, Brian hates the ocean and never surfed. Would he put sand in his living room? Yeah, okay. Well, that, that, but isn't that crazy? It's, it's well, there's nothing, there's nothing but contradiction in this story. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons the book is called God Only Knows is because of the song title and the opening quote from Paul McCartney in the book in the overture where he talks about God Only Knows and the genius of Brian Wilson. But as much as anything, it's called God Only Knows because when you ask me a question, the answer is often God Only Knows because because there is an inexplicable nature to this. I've written more words about Brian and the Beach Boys, I'm pretty sure, than anybody else alive. And th there's just no way to know the answer to, to a lot of these uh, questions, particularly when it comes to the relationship with 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 Murray Wilson, who did terrible things to them, but then drove them to success. Mm -hmm. They fired him as his uh, the manager. He remained their publisher, and he sold the publishing out from under Brian without telling. Talk him. about that. They came back from a tour in Australia or something, and they fired their dad. How, how did that? What, why did they do that? And how did that transpire? Well, probably more than anything, he was. They were probably tired of being told not to go near the girls. <laughs> I, that, that would be my guess. I mean, you're, you're young, you're on the road, and there are a lot of girls. And these were red-blooded American boys in a, in a time of, of there, had, there was no um, – the sexual revolution, maybe they invented it. <laughs> but that's, that's competition to a controlling father. He does not want another voice in their heads, especially the voice of someone they're in love with. 
So he he knew to kind of try to at least contain that. Well, he was also concerned about statutory rape. Oh, well, so there was there was lots there was lots of stuff going on. It's just it goes on deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. My focus as much as possible has just been about the artistry mm-hmm. and the artistic journey. Um, there there have been books written about. The, the the behind the scenes lives of these guys that are that are more salacious and Car- the late Carl Wilson was asked about one of them he goes that's just the tip of the iceberg I don't want to I don't want to go anywhere near that iceberg mm-hmm. now I unfortunately to be Brian's friend you have no choice but to but to but to be there there was a, a weird psychologist who took control of his life for for nine years and when when it ended looking back on it Brian said. When asked what it was like, he said it was like being in prison for nine years. So talk about the Landy years for a moment, because that's another huge contradiction. It's it's kind of a guy who's going to push him like his dad did, but then it's it's a guy who who exerts too much control over someone's independent path, and and it was a lot of fear based uh, behavioral psychology. So so talk about those years, because that's something that a lot of fans are interested in. So one could write an entire book about those years yeah, for exactly. sure. I, I've devoted a chapter in, in the update to that because I was there when a lot of it happened. If if you go back to the original book, there's a sentence that angered people in the extended Beach Boys family. Uh, the sentence was, there's the family's love of Brian, and then there's the family's love of fame and fortune. And um, Dr. Landy... I hate to word, use the word doctor in front of his name. Um, he was a psychologist. Um, he could understand what was going on in in the in the in the psychodrama of the Wilson world, and he knew how to take advantage of it. So he was hired in 1975 by Brian's first wife Marilyn, and a year about a year later he was fired by the Beach Boys because he was meddling so much in in their affairs. So the question you would ask is. Well, if he was hired to make Brian better, why was he fired by the Beach Boys? Because mm. he was meddling in their business. Well, that's one issue. So now we fast forward six years. It's the fall of, two, of, of, of 1982, and Brian is almost eating himself to death. Mm. I remember seeing him uh, at a house in, in the Palisades, and, and he, was, he, he looked like he was going to die soon. And the Beach Boys hired Landy to save Brian's life. Desperation. Uh, desperation would be the right word. It was a, it was a Hail Mary pass. Right. Uh, Landy, having been fired the first time, knew the second time. He says, okay, you want me back. You want me to perform a miracle. I want total control. And so he gets total control. The irony of, of what that total control means is two things, both of which turn out to be great for Brian once his prison sentence is over. Okay. It's Dr. Landy who takes Brian into a solo career. It's he has the power to stand up to the Beach Boys now. And that was when Brian, I mean, that was when Dennis and Carl were still alive. Dennis had passed away. Carl was still alive. Okay. So so the Beach Boys were still, had a record deal. They were functioning. They were making albums and touring. And, and Landy got Brian a solo deal. Um, I shouldn't say he got a solo deal. Uh, Warner Brothers and and Sire Records approached uh, Brian's representatives and said, we'd like to do an album with Brian. So 
that was a great thing that Brian suddenly was going to be in a place where it wouldn't matter what anyone else thought of the music, whether it was right or wrong for the Beach Boys, that he could just make his own music. The other thing that that Landy did, we sow the seeds of our own destruction. When 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 Brian bought a car at Martin Cadillac at the corner of Bundy and 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 West Olympic Boulevard, no longer there, so there's no no promo for them. The saleswoman who bought the car, Melinda Ledbetter at the time, oh. uh, Dr. Landy said, Brian, I want you to ask her out on a date. What? He picked his wife? He didn't pick his wife. He picked somebody that he thought would be safe for Brian to go out with. Okay. And, and, and Melinda, seeing what was going on, is the person who led the charge to get rid of Landy. That's fascinating. That's Go, great. Melinda. Yes. That's, so, That's extraordinary. So he saves Brian's life. We give him credit for that. He takes Brian's solo. We give him credit for that. And he brings Melinda into his life. She's her own Trojan horse. Yes. So, so each part of Brian's life is full of these unbelievably complicated circumstances. And the way I've come to, to experience it is I believe that Brian has guardian angels. That, I think you're right. That, that at various times, and in the 1970s, he really needed them. He was wandering, literally wandering the streets of Los Angeles, um, sometimes drugged up, sometimes just lost. And there was always somebody there to take him in and help him. Linda Ronstadt tells a wonderful story in the book, in, in her autobiography, about see, Brian showing up at her house one day and holding out a handful of change and saying, I'm a quarter short of this grape juice I need to get for this condition that I've got. Can you help me out? And she says, sure. And they go, they drive in Brian's car to the store and they get the grape juice. And, and Linda looks in the back seat and sees a whole pile of dirty laundry. And she said, I had a lot of quarters. And Brian, let's go do your laundry. <laughs> and so they went and did his laundry. And then they, they went back to Linda's apartment and listened to Phil Spector records. Oh, wow. And but one story, if we have time for it. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm sitting in my apartment in West Los Angeles in 1978. I finished the book, but it hasn't yet come out. And there's a, a Beach Boys collector is visiting me from Colorado. He was the biggest Beach Boys collector in the world outside of the, the Beach Boys themselves. And the agreement I had made when, I worked on the, when we were working on the book was, whatever I get in the course of making the book will be yours. I can't pay you to work and so he had flown out to L.A. to get get the, the stuff. And we dropped his, his suitcase at my apartment. We went to another place that no longer exists, La Barbara's Pizzeria on, on Wilshire Boulevard. Had pizza and went back to my apartment, put the leftover slices in the refrigerator. And we're talking into the wee hours of the morning about Brian and the Beach Boys in the book. And, and, and my friend Peter says, you know, this is the first time I've ever come to Los Angeles without running into Rodney Bingenheimer and Harvey Kubernick. Rodney, of course, the legendary DJ, KROQ, and, and Harvey at that time, the, the, the West Coast correspondent for Melody Maker magazine. And I said, well, you're not going to see him on this trip because he's going to the airport in the morning. Well, one o'clock in the morning <laughs> on my door. It's like, who's in my apartment at 1 o'clock in the morning? And I o open the door, and it's Rodney and Harvey. And with them is Brian Wilson. No. Wow. And Harvey says to me, we didn't know what to do with him, so we brought him here because we figured you'd know. Oh, my. What happened? And they leave. 
And they left him there? And Brian sits down and he says, do you have anything to eat? And I said, well, I got some leftover pizza. Pizza, sure. And I heat the pizza up in my little toaster oven. He, he wolfs them down and he goes to sleep on the couch. Wakes up around 3.30 in the morning and, and, and uh, says, can you give me a ride home? <laughs> and I did. And so I, but I think every night of his life, would, something like that was happening. Someone would interview. What was the reaction to the big collectors? You provided a great service. Where do you see who's coming at one o'clock in the morning? This is part of your collection. You get Brian. Well, what's 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 you know the time Brian was asleep. We can't talk about him now. We're just <laughs> we're just we're just looking at each other like what the heck is going on? Now when I when I did when I wrote the update of the book. I didn't go back and, and change the original book because people had wanted to read that original book. It was a big eBay item for decades. And 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 in the update, in the epilogue, I put stories from the 70s like this that, that I had no place for. And I talked to Harvey. I said, why did you bring him to my house? And he says, well, you were always the adult in the room. I was you know, I met Harvey when he was 24 at the Santa Monica Civic. We were we were sleeping outside the box office for Bruce Springsteen tickets, <laughs> and we'd become friends. But but I said, well, what happened? Why was Brian with you? And he says, well, I was going to Rodney's house that night because Rodney always had the latest records from England, and I was going to listen to records. And I parked at at his place uh, off of Sunset, and I saw this guy weaving in traffic in the middle of Sunset Boulevard. He was hungry. And Harvey just ran out and grabbed the guy. He didn't know who the guy was. And it was Brian. Wow. That's so sad. That whole... And and so so this tremendous sadness in this story, uh, Fritz, it's it's really it's it's this guy has made amazing he's still with us. The, 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 he's 80 he's over 80 now mm-hmm. he, he he's he is with us he, he he gave the world so much joy with his music and in this new edition of the book that's what i wanted to celebrate i didn't want to tell the sad stories i didn't want to talk about what went wrong and does I, he I, understand that you are now his greatest advocate that you wanted to set the record straight with the narrative of his life and correct all the misinformation and obviously he does because he's included you in his life. But does he feel like you've done him a great service with these books? I don't know if he'd put it that way. He knows I'm his friend. And and friend, that's what friends do for their friends. I guess I get a little extreme here. You know, I, I'm, but again, as a, as a missionary, I was. this was a calling for me. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about it, Brian is courageous because he has to push his art through the torment and the complexities of his mind. So he really is just valiant. So, so Louise, the, the key to what you just said is not only is he brave, and when people say, well, if you said to him, you know, how have you done this, and where did you get the strength? He says, well, my last name is Wilson, so I guess I have willpower. Oh. I mean, you know, that's, but, but without going through all that terror, all that horror, we wouldn't have the music because he said that he did his greatest writing when he was his most depressed, right? Well, it, it, he's drawing upon all of those feelings, and that's what touched me. The first Beach Boys song that I was touched by was In My Room. Mm-hmm. There's a melancholy to his work that, that every baby boomer 12-year-old could relate to, and that con- continued for generation after generation after generation. And I think you also have to watch some of the movies because there's a lot of expression in his eyes. And if you, if you, when you watch Brian— in a movie, you realize like this face 
is so known to me because we know him at every age. We know him at every weight. We know him with every hairstyle. We just know him. And you look in his eyes and they're, they're saying so much to you. They are. There's, a, there's, a, there's sometimes a real sadness in his eyes. The, the Don Was film, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, available on YouTube. It's a, it's a terrific little documentary. And in it, Brian, his mother Audrey, his brother Carl sing a song together. His, his late wife, Marilyn, not his late wife, his first wife, Marilyn, I'm sorry, uh, is asked a question and she says, they, in reference to the Beach Boys, I'm, I'm something like, it's, I'm sorry to say it, but they really tore him down. And she's referring to, to the Beach Boys. Um, you ask Brian uh, uh, in the movie, Brian has asked a couple of very straightforward questions. Where did this song come from? And he says, well, once in a while, your soul wants to come out and play. Oh, what a great line. Yeah. He's asked, you know, why are you not making music with the Beach Boys? He says, well, they wanted to make their kind of music, and I wanted to make my kind of music. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, not, it's not that complicated in, in his mind, but to live it, to make it happen. Well, to live it was – he was torn by his loyalty. They were his family. So that – you know, you have scenes where they're sitting down and saying, okay, Brian, you could make, I think it was David Andrelly was, say, was saying, you could make your own record and there's a meeting and Brian's just like, but I don't want to. He he didn't want to do that to them. They were, you know, he had this emotional push That's pull. right. Yeah. He, he needed them to say, Brian, we love this smile music right. unconditionally and he wouldn't have been worried about the marketplace. It would have it would have been finished and, and, and come out and... The, the path of the of the, the media path of music history mm-hmm. would would have been changed in ways that we don't know, but but that's not that that's not his story. His story was not one of undying loyalty towards him. Now at the same time, there were periods. You know, we talked about guardian angels. As much conflict as there might have been in the family, there were nights where Carl Wilson was out on the streets of Los Angeles looking for his brother. Where is he? I mean, oh, it's, just, it's, it's just, it's it, just, it, I, I couldn't understand. And, and it, it comes, comes down to, I came from a different world. I couldn't understand how the person who had made you all rich and famous could be abandoned the way it felt like he had been abandoned. Well, I mean, you do kind of articulate some of the trickiness of it. They all went to Beach Boys University. That was their education. They knew how to be a beach boy. Now they've got families. They've got obligations. They've got a house. They've got a mortgage. They've got this kid who needs to go to this school or whatever their issues were. So there's a lot of pressure on every individual person that that isn't necessarily being articulated at that one meeting. But that person, whether it's Al or Dennis, is thinking, geez, I... We need another hit because I, you know, I. Well, it, was, it wasn't Dennis. Dennis. Not Den- ever. Dennis, Dennis loved everything Brian did. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, whoever it was. And Den- and Dennis had a similar gift to Brian's. He yeah. just didn't have the discipline. His his one solo album, Pacific Ocean Blue, from '77, is spectacular wow. in, in terms of if you love Wilsonian music. The Beach Boys could have recorded those songs. I should always say Mike when I'm giving examples. So Mike is thinking, I have this wife or ex-wife or whatever, kids or whatever, and how am I going to make this work? You know, and what's my 10-year plan if this is the kind of music that isn't going to be played on the radio and how do I tour and all that? Well, it goes back to you, you referred to the family. Um, in 1962, 
the beach the beatles who had the beatles were struggling for 5 years they were they were bonded like like you know unbreakable particularly john paul and george um and then this guy brian epstein comes along a worldly sophisticated classy man who has a vision for what the what the beatles are going to be that same year in 1962 murray wilson becomes the manager of the beach boys and he he decided it was going to be a family business and that's and that's the difference between their story their narratives diverge in large part because we're going to keep this to ourselves versus share it all with with the world and whoever comes in our path that we might want to collaborate with. I see. Yeah, to the Beatles it felt like Brian was this fancy guy who li- likes us Liverpool kids and like that. They were just completely enamored to the Wilsons, this is our dad. So the whole different level of relationship. Um, and how, how many kids did Brian? He had Carney Wilson was his daughter. Carney, Carney and Wendy, daughters from his first marriage. And what was his relationship with those kids? Better answered by them, but it, it was it was not. There was nothing traditional about their their the, uh, the father daughter relationship. I mean, one of the saddest things I, I ever heard Carney say was, and and it wasn't said. Fifth, you know, 40 years ago, it was said within the last 25 years, he said, we're going to be spending Father's Day with our dad for the first time. Really? And there was just something about the the, the, the Wilson family dynamic. Uh, Carl Wilson was, was, was kind of more of a father to, to them than, than, huh. than Brian was. Brian said in an interview, he said, I don't want to screw it up the way my dad did. So he went 180 degrees in the other direction. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Does Brian enjoy being an interesting puzzle? <laughs> I, you know, he enjoys eating. He enjoys <laughs> he enjoys laughing. He enjoys singing. He enjoys making music. He, really, musicians are the people he loves being around the most, and young people. Uh, especially kids, because kids, you know, to him haven't been kind of sullied by life, and and so, um, you know, he he's he's so sweet, and there's a childlike quality to him that that still is there, he, he, you know. Even you know, it's I was I think I called him to, to he was touring this summer, and I said called called to say happy birthday, and he said, "What are you driving these days?" <laughs> I mean, it's such a such a you know a teenage question. Yeah. Uh. Does he like performing? He didn't at first, right? He didn't like performing. You know, if you if you think about what what sound was like on stage in the early sixties, it was the sound systems were terrible. Mm-hmm. There were there were no stage monitors. There mm-hmm. were there were no great equipment. Um, and he only is he can only hear in one ear, so it was really tough on his hearing. He also was shy. So so there's a period before he quits touring for good. Where he's not going out on on dates e- uh, either. Both Al Jardine and and David Marks are there, and, and Brian isn't. So it, the, the 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 road was clear for him to leave the road. Um, when he started touring in, in 1999, it was the most unexpected thing I ever heard. In fact, uh, one of my favorite sentences in in the update of the book is, you know, I, I say. You know, when I heard Brian, when we heard Brian was going to go on tour, uh, we were wrong. A moment to reflect on how wrong we were, because everything great that happened uh, in Brian's creative life happened because he went on tour. 
from that point on. And, and, and because what, what he experienced was that people wanted to hear Brian Wilson it didn't have to be within the context of the Beach Boys. I, I, before we run out of time, Weezy, I wanted to address one thing that I wanted to talk about earlier in the hour, which was um, Pet Sounds was the first time they used studio musicians to do the Beach Boy parts, correct? He, he, he was enamored with the Phil Spector sound and wanted to kind of duplicate that. But we watched The Wrecking Crew, and that's another, you know, that's another part of that story where he used these brilliant studio musicians, but never had anything written down. Uh, Hal Blaine says he would come in there, and Hal Blaine was the drummer in the Wrecking Crew and for the Beach Boy sessions, and he would just come in and sort of describe the sound he wanted to each of the musicians, and that's how they would build it. There was no notation at all, which is another evidence of his genius, I guess. He would write out the chord charts. He had the melody, but 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 it was it was all in his head. Uh, Danny Hutton tells a great story in the Don Was documentary about. L.A. Uh, symphony uh, players coming in to do a string part, and 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 they nailed it on the first take. And Brian says, "No, no, no, I want, I want it to cry, make it sound like it's crying." And they're like, "What's he talking about? We're hitting the notes perfectly." But Danny says he drove them to a place they hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. And he did that with everybody in, in his life. Some people he drove crazy um, with, with, with his you know, demands. But, but in terms of the, of the Wrecking Crew, which wasn't their real name, um, that, was, that was a- That was the name of the movie that they did. That's the name of the movie, and that's, a, that's the name of, that, that Hal Blaine put on them. Mm-hmm. They weren't known as, as that back in the 60s. Brian had used mu- session musicians in, in 65 while the Beach Boys were on tour. Um, um, so, but Pet Sounds was for a complete album where, 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 with the exception of maybe Carl on guitar, there, there's- It was a Brian Wilson album, it, essentially. It, it essentially was. There's- Two, there's two instrumentals, so there's no Beach Boys on that. There's two songs where Brian sings the lead and there's no backing vocals. Uh, God Only Knows has, has, a, has only three vocalists, Carl, he, Brian, and Bruce. So five of the, of the songs on Pet Sounds are not Beach Boys songs at all. And uh, something like I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, which is, again, Brian tells you exactly where he is. Uh, if, if I can leave... Leave anybody with any thought. If you want to know the story of Brian Wilson, yes, please buy the book. But, <laughs> but the truth is, it's in his music. You you follow his musical journey, and you can hear what he's thinking at, at at every every moment of his life. Well, I have to close with a BG's question because I'm I'm a fan. I'm I'm an but, enormous BG's fan. I, 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 I spent it took a lot of time in, in, in the in in the B section of the record store. <laughs> Beatles, BG's, and Beach Boys. But can we? Uh, both Barry and Brian are now brotherless brothers. So, w- when you built a high profile career with siblings, describe the blend of emotions and losing the the only folks who share those surreal memories with you. And you know Barry and you know Brian. Like what 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 are they going through? I'll leave Barry, Barry, who's writing his autobiography, to to, to answer that question. Okay. It, 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 the relationships are complicated. Mm-hmm. When when Barry and and his brothers started out, their first billing was Barry and the Twins. Really? Before it became the Bee Gees, and some people say the Bee Gees stood for Barry Gibb. Brothers Gibb, more. Well, yeah. eventually, brothers Gibb. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and Barry 
had the same loyalty to his brothers that Brian had. Mm -hmm. As the oldest brother, he felt responsible for them. And in the 1960s, when, when the Bee Gees really hit it big worldwide, 67, 68, Barry Gibb looked like Richard the Lionhearted. I mean, he's this gorgeous guy. You know, he looked his... like Jesus. Well, uh, okay, I'll, I'll leave that. that Barry is... was better looking than that. Barry's better looking than Jesus. <laughs> he was a god. And, and people were saying, Barry, what do you need these guys for? Go solo. He no, says, no. Oh, yeah. I love the twins. And, and, and so he's, no, I'm not going. And then. Robin leaves the group, and then Barry and Morris carry on, and then one day Barry shows up for a session, and he hears Morris has left the group. And it's like, oh, I guess I'm on my own. And Barry spends 18 months working on a solo album, and just as he's about to put it out, Robin shows up and says, can we put the Bee Gees back together? And Barry puts his album aside. So Barry made sacrifices. The difference was Barry... Barry, um, who wrote a a very sweet essay for the book... Um, he uh, never he was a, he was a pothead. He was never into heavy drugs or psychedelics or anything like that. So he's he's had his wits about him all these years. Uh, the heartbreak of losing brothers is 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 indescribable. Um, he misses them. Brian misses his brothers. He misses the ability to use their voices. Um, he, he misses just laughing with Dennis. Unfortunately, Dennis. Um, I mentioned Dennis wasn't the most disciplined person. There's a there's a there's a tape. On, I think it's online. It's called the Cocaine Tapes from the early '80s, where Brian and Dennis are making music and great music together, fueled by uh, the, the 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 white powder. So Dennis wasn't necessarily a good influence on Brian, and vice versa. Um, Barry was always a good influence. Have Barry and Brian ever had a chance to get together and talk about their very similar? Life arcs. When we talked, we talked earlier about being intimidated. Barry is enormously intimidated by Brian. He really wants wants to wanted to make a record with him, and I don't know if it's going to happen. My one of my favorite moments in life was I got a call from the Bee Gees world asking if Brian would induct the Bee Gees into the Rock and Roll oh, Hall of God, Fame. That would have been something. And and he and Brian did. Brian said, "Yeah, I'll do that." That's how much Brian was loved the Bee Gees. Yeah. Wow. And so we went to Cleveland, and the night before. Brian was going to sing the song Too Much Heaven as part of the induction. Wow. And so Barry came to the hotel room where Brian was, and they went over the song together. And you want to talk about magical moments, goosebump moments. Wow. The, the two of them, and, and the night of the induction, when, when Brian was singing the song, he hits that, that note, In my life. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I went flat. <laughs> Um, usually I'll sing God Only Knows if you, if you push me at the end. But, but at the table next to, to us at, at, the, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was this group you may have heard of called Crosby, Stills, and Nash. A little bit. And, and when Brian hits that note, we hear from the next table, David Crosby goes, oh, my God. Because Brian's voice is one of the great voices of all time. He could time. still hit the note. Wow. He could still hit the note. And, and, and it, it, was, it was a pretty magical wow magical time and I, I you know you mentioned b- spending time in, in the bees section I've been trying to uh, to do a, a course at UCLA called the killer bees that, oh. would, that, that would focus on my, well, my I, three favorite groups and Bob Dylan well okay so here's your next project if you can pull this off I'll help you with it so there'd be an album and we would have collaborating and on writing Brian Barry Gibb and Paul McCartney sure why not 
Three part, three part <laughs> harmony. Just arrange that, and and then we'll have you back. Why, why not? Uh, why, 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 <laughs> Only under those conditions. <laughs> why, why not solve the homelessness crisis in America? <laughs> you didn't think you could pull off smile, and you did. What are you working on now? Um, I'm, just, I'm just finishing a documentary on on the legendary rock and roll hall of famer Dion. Wow. Who was one of the greatest. Great songwriter. Great writer. And on the way over here, I listened to the 50s on 5 on Sirius XM, and they played some old Dion and the Belmont tunes a couple in a row. And I thought, what a wide arc of talent. He is. He has the greatest story, and he's the best storyteller. I mean, he didn't get on the plane with Buddy Holly. I was after him for years wow. to, to do a documentary. And one day we're having lunch, and I, and I told him why he didn't get on the plane with Buddy Holly. And he goes, no, no, David, that's not what happened. Let me tell you why I didn't get on the plane. And I said, that's why we need to make this film, Dion. And Wait, he go, why didn't and he, he goes, get on the plane? Oh, that's a long story. Oh. He has a blues album out now, which is very good because they play that on on B.B. Uh, King's Bluesville. He's had two blue number one blues albums in a yeah, row. Yeah, it's really he, good. He's an amazing, yeah. amazing artist. Yeah. Bob Dylan says, if you want to know about singing listen to Dion. Oh, wow. that's so cool. So when's this going to be completed and uh, out and for public consumption? Uh hopefully uh, by middle of next year. All right, so let's tell people where they can find your book God Only Knows. Right now the only place to get it is Amazon. They've got the stock. It's it's pretty much out of stock everywhere else. Yeah. Um until the middle of December. So as as uh, as a Christmas present Amazon. I is, think is every place. resident of the state of California should do California History 101, which is the story of the Beach Boys, because it's the attitude that they brought. It's how they changed the culture of California. It's how the rest of the world perceived us. You're from New Rochelle, New York. I'm from Philadelphia. I had to have a skateboard. I pretended I was the surfer kid. I, and it, 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 I'd have to fly to get to an ocean. That's, that's how close. <laughs> I, and, and so I, I'm telling you, they were a great cultural force in America and I highly recommend your book it's really a beautiful piece of work thank you so much and and if if only the southern half of the state buys it that'll be okay no that (laughs) no there's 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 so much in here about family dynamics yes about being there for one another about overlapping uh, storylines and and you have such a beautiful way of making complex concepts simple you know sometimes I'd read a sentence again and I go okay got what he's Got this point, and it's and we all come from families, so this is stuff that's highly relatable. But in under a microscope and a high profile spotlight, these people kind of existed and shared their gift with us. Thank you, and and really, if you if you if you love popular music, yes. absolutely, Brian's story is pretty essential. And how the rest of the pop world reacted to him, especially Pet Sounds, and how highly he was lauded for that piece of work. And Fritz has something to announce. I, I, I'm, we're going way off topic here, but uh, our friend Jamie Alcroft, one of the great comedians of all time, is the recipient of a, a heart. He ha- he was somebody donated their heart to him when he died, and he's doing a benefit for organ donors this Thursday night at Comedy and Magic Club in Hermosa Beach at 1018 Hermosa Avenue, one of the great comedy clubs. As a matter of fact, if you watch Jay Leno's return to stand-up comedy on the news, that's where he performed uh, last Sunday night. It was a big thing. But he's doing a, a, a donor night. It's free admission for organ donors and only $25 if you're a non-organ donor. Wait, just like to, to clarify, you don't have to give a kidney to get in. <laughs> 
Well, that was it's, the last part of it. No, you do. A, no, they're like, going to have people there that you know, there's going to be a kiosk for liver, <laughs> a kiosk for kidney. No, no, it's people who have not, not, not chopped liver. I assume. No, 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 we'd pack a place if we could do that. Yeah. But anyway, there'll be ten comics. I'm going to be honored to be performing on this bill. Who else is there, Fritz? It, 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 he's, they, they're not revealing it. It's so spectacular that they're afraid that the roof will go off the place. Uh, but it's Rodney this, Bingenheimer is going to show up with. With Brian that would be Wilson, and uh, who's going to ask for a meal and fall asleep on the couch. <laughs> anyway, showtime's eight o'clock. Uh, we would love to see you there. It'll be fun. Comedy and Magic, one of the great comedy clubs in America. And for more information about it, go to their website, which is uh, what, what would it be? It would be, I'm sure, um, comedyandmagic.com. Oh yeah, Mike Lacey's wonderful club. Yep. Uh, great food there too. Here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and a kind review in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. We would love you for that. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guest, David Leaf. Please buy and read his book. You will love it. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Get me into the Bee Gees, and it's like, wait, I want to know why Barry and Robin never got.